You are listening to the Arizona Talks podcast, creating a space for civil dialogue and robust debate on public policy issues. Today, we listen into a discussion on how voting is unfolding in Arizona and across the country. Here is the policy panel that happened live in Phoenix at Arizona Talks, election integrity and voting rights. My name is Chris Klein. I'm the president of the Arizona Broadcasters Association. I am, are we okay here with mics? <laughs> Do I get a mic? Do you get a, get a mic. Everybody gets a mic. That's how it works. Awesome. Except for Mike, but that's okay. I'll share mine with you, I promise. You're welcome. My name is Chris Klein. I'm the president of the Arizona Broadcasters Association. We're the group that represents about 200 radio and TV stations in the state. My job tonight is the easiest, which is to just ask the questions. These three are the ones that are going to give us the answers. Um, as you heard from Carlos, the, the goal of tonight is, is super simple. It's to have a discussion and to have a dialogue and to bring people that think differently together so that we can talk through what we all know has been probably the most talked about issue in the country, and it happens to be centered here in Arizona, and that is election integrity. But before we get to that discussion, I want to make sure we introduce each of our panelists. I'm going to introduce them, give you their names first, and then I'm going to ask them for 30 seconds, just 30 seconds, to give us your quick bio, okay? But the introducing first, Luis Acosta Herrera is the Arizona State Director for Unite America. Mike Noble in the middle here is the Chief of Research and Managing Partner for um, OH Predictive Insights. And Alex Colladin is the co-counsel to the Arizona Republican Party. So, Alex, maybe we could start with you. You got 30 seconds to tell us everything we need to know about you. Well, well, sure. The first thing you need to know about me is the people that Representative Bolin was complaining about. Uh, that's me. Uh, I, I helped uh, write the bill that would have put uh, decertification uh, dis- discretion in the hands of the legislature. And it's not anti-democratic. It's pro-democratic. Right now, it's in the hands of one person, the Secretary of State. This would have put it in the hands of 91 people. I thought that was a very good safeguard on our electoral system. Uh, I'm co-counsel to the Arizona Republican Party. I am a partner at Davalier Law Group, uh, and I'm on the national legal team for Guardian Defense Fund, which is a nonprofit that focuses on election integrity and freedom of speech issues. Uh, Looking forward to engaging in this conversation, representing the conservative point of view, because as Representative Bowling said, everybody deserves a seat at the table. Some of us wonder if any voters have a seat at the table, whether we have meaningful elections at all. And so, well, elections should be easy to vote in. They shouldn't be easier to vote in than can be administered fairly and with integrity. And that's the position I'm here to represent. Mike Noble. Do I get uh, 90 seconds seconds as well? 30 seconds. Okay, 30 seconds. Got it. Uh, So my name is Mike Noble. I'm the chief of research at a little company called OH Predictive Insights. We're a nonpartisan public opinion polling, market research, predictive analytics, best way to describe it, a nerdery. So me and my fellow nerds, uh, all we do is look at data, all that fun stuff. And one of the interesting things is that say what you want about pollsters. It really depends on which pollster you're talking to, because you're talking to a pollster in Florida. Man, did they whiff that last election? Did they not? But what we know is it, it depended on which pollster and which state. I can't speak for others. I can speak for myself that here in Arizona, we were five for five on elections called. So, I mean, uh, you can wait till election day or I can just let, let you know who wins ahead of time. But probably the best way to describe it is that I'm here to represent the uh, voters uh, since we do more public opinion polling than anyone else in the country when it comes to Arizona. So my point of view would be uh, me 
translating, but pretty much of what I see in the data that I look at all day and every day regarding voter opinion and all that fun stuff. And Luis. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. My name is Luis Manuel Acosta. I am the state director at Unite America, Unite America's national organization dedicated to protecting voter rights across the country. Uh, we have three active programs, one in Virginia, one in Colorado, and then one in Arizona. Spent the majority of my time this past year defending um, voters' rights at the state legislature, um, advocating for increased integrity and security, but also ensuring that voters were not disenfranchised through uh, I'm sure some of the stuff that you wrote. <laughs> so uh, very, very excited to, to be a part of the conversation and really looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. So the ground rules are really simple. This is a conversation. My hope and goal is we keep the answers relatively brief so that we give everybody a chance to weigh in. And the first question I'm going to direct to both Alex and Luis. Luis, we'll start with you. And that question is, how did we get to where we're at today and what changed from 2020 to 2018 where election integrity is now a central talking point on both sides of the aisle? Yeah, that's the question of the hour, right? Um, you know, taking a step back, I think we've been on this path and trajectory for the last decade. Um, and over our opinion over at United America is that this is uh, an issue across the country that that's been boiling up and it's really centered around what we call the primary problem, which is essentially we have primary elections across the state and across the country where roughly 80% of the races, if not 90% of the races specifically here in the state of Arizona are decided in the primary. And so you get to a point where elected officials or candidates who are running for elected office are only talking to a small segment of the population, the most active, the most populist, the most, sorry, not populist, um, the most partisan folks. Um, and then after they win the primary, they really don't have a general election because they only have to worry about the primary and they get elected and they only have to worry about getting reelected to those folks, right? They're only held accountable to those folks. And so you get into a situation where folks end up at the state legislature and end up representing um, that small fragment of the population that elected them that maybe want X, Y, Z done. Um, additionally, I mean, we can talk about the big lie and the things that, you know, former President Trump um, kind of started at the national level and how it trickled down to us at the local level. But essentially, those two things hand in hand drove us to the center point in time where we're fighting consistently uh, across across the aisle. Same question for you, Alex. What between 2020 and 2018 changed and how did we get to where we're at today with election integrity? So I want to I want to answer that question firstly with a quote. Our elections should be as secure as Fort Knox, but instead they're less secure than your Amazon account. State and local officials take their jobs seriously, but they often don't have the resources to secure their elections. Even then, it's hard for local officials to defend against attacks from foreign governments. The harsh truth is that our elections are extremely vulnerable to attack. So who said that? Was it, does anybody know who said that? It, yeah, it was Donald J. Trump, actually. It was Elizabeth Warren in 2019. So I wonder, how did this become a partisan issue? I've been doing election integrity litigation for better part of a decade now. Uh, and my first case was brought on behalf of a bipartisan group of folks uh, who were suing to establish that the metadata stored on election integrity uh, or st stored on election uh, computers was a public record under Arizona law. And we won that suit. When we got access to that data, we discovered that early voting results were being accessed prior to election day. Uh, so 
how did things get here? Well, the same way things got screwed up in a lot of society, we sacrificed local control for corporate control, right? Which is something I think even progressives can agree has happened in this country, right? What we used to do, the way we used to administer elections in this country is we all used to get together with our friends and neighbors in our precincts, which were our neighborhoods, and we used to sit down together and we used to count our votes together. And somewhere along the way that got centralized, first at the county level with voting centers and centralized counting, later with machines uh, provided to the county under exclusive contracts uh, signed by large corporations. And as we found out, of course, during the Maricopa County audit, uh, the, not even our elected officials have actually had control over our elections, right? The passwords to those machines were never in the hand of the government at all. They were in the hand of Dominion. Uh, and so as the process of voting and counting votes has gotten more attenuated, public trust in the institution has diminished. And I think the only way to restore that is to bring voting back to the local level, uh, to have strict ID requirements for, for people who cast ballots so that everybody knows that, that votes are solid and counted. Uh, and in that way, I think that we can restore a healthier republic for everyone. So maybe we can explore that point a little bit. And Luis, I'm going to throw this to you with the question of, we'll get to you, Mike. You're coming up. You're coming up. What's wrong with the idea of some added safeguards to protect the election? As example, we, we talked earlier about Senate Bill 1485. This is a new law in Arizona that removes people from the early early mail-in voting list if they don't vote in two, vote in two cycles. Uh, Alex mentioned the potential for requiring ID for mail-in voting. Why would we not want to strengthen voting regardless of whether or not there's a problem? Yeah, I, I don't think that it's that we do not want to strengthen um, election integrity and transparency, right? I think we all want that. Democrat, Republican, Progressive, conservative, Tea Party, whatever, right? That, that, that's a goal, right? We want safe and secure elections regardless. It's, I will take a step back and say, it's the devil in the details that, that really gets us there. So um, one of the, the the pieces of legislation that you brought up that was in front of um, being run by uh, Senator Mesnard, which required um, a form of identification to be uh, photocopied and sent back with your ballot, um, it was either a, a, a military ID, an Arizona ID, or your social security card, right? You think about that. You think about me as an individual, as a voter, mailing back a photocopy of my social security number in my ballot. There's some issues there, right? Because if for some reason, somewhere along the way, it gets lost in the mail or some random person picks it up, they now have access to my social security number, right? And what amount of fraud and what can happen with that? It's not necessarily that we want to stop people from being secure in the way that they vote. It's just we have to be just look at the details, right? And look how this is actually going to be implemented and how it's going to be practical. I think one of the things that, you know, and I'll take Alex's side here and say that there was a great law this past session that removed dead people from the voter rolls. And I'll say Democrats, not looking at any Democrat in the audience specifically, but Democrats opposed it in large numbers because it was simply a, a switch uh, from the word may to shall. Right. And that little switch garnered a lot of opposition from Democrats saying that, you know, you're, you're disenfranchising voters. And it's like, well, they're, they're dead. Why shouldn't be why shouldn't we be removing those folks from the voter rolls? So it's give and take from both sides. It's, it's a situation where we really have to understand the policy and figure it out and do what's in the best interest of Arizonans. 
Mike, maybe here's where we can bring you in. I, I know we want to spend a little bit of time really flushing out the, the audit, but I, I know you've done a lot of pulling on that audit. And I'm curious what the data shows people in Arizona think about election integrity and whether they believe there are issues that have affected previous elections or could affect future elections. Great question. And so with that is that, uh, you know, it's funny when you start looking at the data, it kind of comes to the obvious of how we kind of got to the situation because there a point was made is that actually this election integrity issue was initially actually brought up by, uh, I think, uh, Hillary Clinton after she lost that initial election to Trump, who, again, no one likes losing in these races because here's the, the, the reality of elections. It's like uh, Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. Two men enter, one man leaves. I mean, that's just really how it works out. There's never a tie or anything else. And there's a lot on the line. You don't, you don't even get a participation trophy for second place in politics, which is the unfortunate part about it. So anyways, as is this hyper polarization that we're seeing, one of the things we want to do is that at the audit is that I wanted to kind of go through, because again, it is a very charged issue on both sides of the aisle. So we actually asked about 15 questions roughly on our, um, I think it was a July survey. We do it every other month. And so basically we went through and I just really want to get an honest take of it. It was one is like, hey, are people, are voters paying attention to this audit? Well, guess what? 90% of Arizona registered voters are at least a little bit or a lot of bit following this audit. So again, are people paying attention? Yes. Why are they paying attention? In the off years, this should be the most boring time in all of politics. Because in the off year, think of it as a very placid lake. In the audit's like throwing a giant rock in the middle of it and creating that giant ripple. So voters are paying attention. So we established that. One of the interesting parts, though, is like, hey, do you agree with the audit? On its, on its principle. So not the way they went about it, but again, the audit on principle. And it was interesting. Voters were split uh, when it came to that issue, uh, even Democrats as well, because I believe in theory, the way the audit was, was uh, put up, I think people agree with that on principle. Like, hey, should you be voting in this election? You know, again, making sure it's verifiable and it's an accurate count on the scoreboard. However, I think where the misstep ultimately happened, I think where voters really soured was the group that ultimately got engaged and ultimately the way they went about it, which, again, typically, like, I have data experience, but guess what? Having to jump into a realm that I'm not as familiar with, there's just a lot of nuances to it, and ultimately, they just got shredded. Like, watching it was just kind of like watching a train wreck, because <laughs> I, mean, I didn't want to watch it, but I'm also watching it because they're just really screwing it up or making a lot of really rookie mistakes that, frankly, if you worked in it a little bit, you'd know the answer. So when we went through voters' opinion is that it was interesting that, uh, you know, two-thirds. So there's two themes that are running through the election. The election was stolen, and there's rampant fraud and all that. Narrative A. Narrative B was, hey, the election may not have been perfect, but the results are accurate. And, you know, can you stand by those results? Two-thirds of Arizona voters believe that, uh, with the most recent statement I said, and only one-third said, hey, rampant fraud. So that was interesting. And a couple other uh, quick points. Uh, what I thought was very surprising. Remember, elections are the bedrock. I mean, what we're electing, like uh, Reginald, for example, state representative, he was elected by his community, by his peers. And again, but if people don't have trust in the bedrock of our election, only six in 10 Arizonans were extremely or moderately confident in our electoral system. Only six in 10 are confident in our bedrock. Okay, that's a problem. 
Because if you don't believe in the foundation we stand on, what foundation do we have? And then the last point I'd like to make is that when we were going through this research and trying to get down to it, is that looking at the group, like what are the expectations voters were looking for once this audit wrapped up? You know, what do they expect to happen? And there was a lot of circulation going around that Trump would be reinstated as president and or, you know, the election would flip from Biden winning, which is the first Democrat since Bill Clinton and now at 96. Right. Uh, uh, winning. I get it. It's a shock. Hasn't happened in a while, but it happened. And so when you look at that, voters ultimately that there's a segment, there's about 20 percent or so of voters that believe that Trump was actually when the audit was completed, that he would be reinstated as president. Well, the audit's completed. He's not reinstated. And by the way, it's literally not even possible in our current constitutional setup. So like, it's not even a real thing, but there's a segment of the population that believes that. I mean, one out of every five voters believes that. That's crazy, right? What is just not true. And what's funny is that when you look at the demographics of this group, like what do they look like? You saw a strong correlation. They're very uh, Trump supportive. OAN news watchers, Fox news watchers. But again, we're seeing this very, this, and Reginald uh, talked about it in his uh, opening, this tribalism that's happening right now, this tribalism. So people are now segmenting to only listening to views that kind of reinforce what they want to believe, whether it's not true or not, it's kind of irregardless. And I find that as, as a kind of an interesting point, but again, it's the reality we're in and that's kind of the data. And I apologize. I probably should have made that quicker, but I threw up a lot there. That's great. No, that works. I think that leads, though, right into the let's talk more about the bedrock, right? You talked about the election process being the bedrock. And Alex's questions for you. I asked Luis in particular, what's wrong with some added election oversight? So I want to ask you the opposite question. Why wouldn't we want to make it as easy as possible for people to vote in the bedrock? Well, I, a, a quick point on the on the bedrock uh, thing, you know, uh, perhaps part of the reason for this tribalism, right, and, and, and this very hot political discourse we have around elections is that elections are actually too important, right? Um, we, were, we were founded as a system of limited government, right, where the government could only do so much. And so it wasn't an existential question who gained elected office because at the end of the day, the government didn't have that big of an influence on your, on your life. It has now come to the point Right where we have where we have members of the opposing party who are sending criminal referrals right to Joe Biden's Justice Department, uh, say, saying that because they don't like the speech of their opponents, uh, their opponents should be arrested. Right, and if they're doing that, there's at least a thought that that's an appropriate thing to do because that's how powerful the government has gotten. Where it locking you up for pure speech is something you legitimately have to be worried about. So that's a little bit of a different take on the bedrock question, but it's, it's certainly the way that I see things. So what's more, you know, what's wrong with making sure that everything, everybody can vote? Look, in principle, right, nothing, right? In principle, it would be great if elections were as, just as easy as pie, right? But, you know, I'm not an economist, but I took a couple of classes in college, and one of the things that they beat into your head is that there's a cost associated with everything. There's a trade-off associated with everything. And the easier you make it to vote, the harder it is to ensure an accurate result and that only legal votes are counted by legal voters. So we take mail-in voting, for, an exa for example, which certainly makes it easier to vote, right? 
I cannot tell you how many complaints because because Maricopa County or, or Scott, the city of Scottsdale is running a small mail-in election on the general plan. And I can't tell you how many messages I've gotten this week from people saying, Alex, I've gotten two ballots. Alex, I've gotten two ballots. What do I do? What do I do? Um, and there is literally nothing stopping these people from filling out both ballots. Or I got a ballot from somebody who, who used to live here. What do I do? There is literally nothing stopping them from filling out these ballots, dropping them in the mail, and having those votes counted twice, right? That is the trade-off that you pay for the convenience of mail-in voting. Now, is it worth it in the case of mail-in voting, right? That's, that's an open question. But, cert- but my position would be it is certainly not worth it in our current system of lack of ID or any of that. Because at the end of the day, what does it matter if it's easy to vote if the result isn't accurate, right? Then voting is a sham. Then voting is a meaningless act. So why should it me- matter whether it's easy or hard? When we're talking about accuracy... And people keep talking about, oh, let's go back to the old days of hand counting. Okay, anyone that saw the hand count compared to the machine count, let's be honest, it was wrong. It was not accurate, right? And it's interesting when we talk about some of these items that were going on. And say what you want, government, they ran actually a fantastic election. Maricopa County actually is actually does a very good job. But you just look at the hand count that was done. It was like, hey, let's go back to this uh, other era back. It's like, hey, let's go back to riding the carriage when we have a car. And that was one of the interesting things, at least I... I took away from the elections and the way kind of going about it. So I agree, I think, on principle with, I think, the ways of going about it. But let's say early voting or some of those other items, for example, that we were looking to do. And it was also a huge advantage for Republicans and ultimately gave that up in which by making it more convenient, you get more participation in the elections. And they have a lot of fail safes that are in there for duplicate ballots and everything else to essentially mitigate against that. So... That, to me, leads into just the, the audit itself, right? What happened here over the summer, Cyber Ninjas, and I want to direct this question at both Alex and Luis. First, just how do you, each of you look at the results of the audit and the process, and what do you believe, each of you, came out of the audit? I'm, I'm curious how you look at what the result was and what that means. and. Alex, since you just spoke, Luis, your turn. Yeah, I'll say that um, we, I, um, was very embarrassed about the audit. Uh, I think that the audit was a, a sham and a waste of taxpayer money. Um, you know, I think it was 150000 or something like that. I mean, Alex can probably tell you how much money came uh, from the taxpayer's over pocket. Five over $5 million, not, but there was... Uh, a, not from the taxpayers. Well, additional money coming from special interests that wanted this audit to be done. Um but it, 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 was, it was just, again, poorly run, right? It was poorly run. There's nothing wrong. The concept or the idea of an audit or a risk-limiting audit, there's nothing wrong with that. Or a recount. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just the manner in which this was conducted just drew a lot of criticism from a lot of people across the country and locally. I think that one of the other things that was just really interesting for me and one of the, the facts that I take back to myself is just all the internal political fires that were occurring with former secretary of state Ken Bennett and him being kicked out. And he's like the liaison between the audit team and the, the Senate and president fan is like jumping in the middle. And then you have former representative Anthony Kern, uh, who was, uh, at the insurrection on January 6th is actually, <laughs> is actually 
counting, I think, votes from his own from the race that he lost. It's it's like what? And so it's just a situation where everybody, at least that was not a part of that team or on that side of the aisle or, or aligned with what was going on, was just really scratching their heads and just really taking a step back and saying, what is going on here? I mean, to, to the point where there was a graduation happening at the Coliseum and there was no plan to figure out what was going to happen with the ballots, right? The ballots were just going to stay in the Coliseum unguarded. And it was a last-minute decision to lock them up or move them to somewhere else so that the audit could continue after the fact. I mean, just a bunch of different things. So, like I said, it was it was bad from our perspective, bad embarrassment, et cetera. And, and just to, to put a pin on that, what was your understanding of the result of the audit? Uh, Biden won by an additional 500 votes. That's what we got. Over to you, Alex. Well, <clears throat> perhaps don't make me come over there and get you, boy. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, um, so what were what were my understanding of the results? Um, first, the results were that there were forty thousand questionable votes. Um, we're the ones talking. There'll be a Q&A at the end. We'll be happy to take the questions at that point. So anyway, my understanding was that there were 40,000 questionable votes that came out of the audit, uh, that uh, it appears our election machines were connected to the Internet, um, that, uh, that we had uh, rampant violations of Arizona criminal statute uh, by Maricopa County, uh, including uh, failure to put barcodes uh, onto the ballots, but you know this is um, this is a p- pattern and practice of criminal violations by Maricopa County, right? Or by at least shady behavior by Maricopa County, right? We forget how all of this kicked off. All of this kicked off with Adrian Fontes printing three hundred thousand ballots that he never should have printed. He had to be enjoined by the Arizona Attorney General's office. Then we had a case where he sent out illegal voting instructions. He had to be, uh, he had to be restrained by the Arizona Supreme Court. That was our case. They said he was threatening to run an illegal and an unconstitutional election. Then Maricopa County fought like hell to stop any observers from going in and seeing uh, the is seeing the actual vote counting process at MC Tech, right? Fought like hell to stop that. What were they afraid of? Why didn't they want public observers to be able to go there, right? Um, and so it's no surprise, of course, that the audit uncovered violations of, of criminal law because the county was sure as hell trying it as hard as it possibly could to hide something, right? Uh, and, and so it found the obvious essentially that they were indeed trying to hide things. Now I'm a lawyer. I believe in the adversarial system, right? And so obviously Maricopa County had its audits, its sham audits, its sham audits, uh, were used, uh, basically to, to mislead the public that not had been done in the hope of preventing a truly adversarial audit from, from coming in, right? Uh, they, they crowed to the Senate that their sham auditors had been accredited by the, uh, by the Elections Assistance Commission. Of course, 
the Elections Assistance Commission does not actually certify auditors. So they kept crying about how their auditors were certified and the other auditors weren't, and there is no such thing, right? They made it up. That was a lie, right? Because they didn't want a truly independent audit. They were worried what that truly independent audit would find. Uh, and so they, they made it up. Uh, and of course, their auditors basically spent two days, did a, did a little sample count, uh, didn't look at very much except running things through the machines, and you know, and said, "Oh, everything looks fine." Uh, but having had a more in-depth process, which is not yet completed, by the way, right? We know that um, we we know that the routers are still yet to be in the possession of the Senate, right? There's now a settlement agreement with a special master. We will never get the passwords to the election machines because we were never in control of our own elections. Uh, and, um, you know, so the audit to some extent will always remain an unfinished work, but what we've seen is concerning, right? Cause we know that the standard for decertification is that there's not, not that it would have changed the results, right? But that there is enough, uh, that there are enough questionable vo votes to throw the result into doubt. And the audit revealed that it appears that there are enough questionable votes to throw the results into doubt. Uh, and that is my uh, my understanding of the results of the audit. So, so I, I have I have a question for you, Alex. A, a couple of minutes ago, you you talked about the concern over widespread fraud preventing an election from being something we can all trust. And I fully understand, you know, as the layman in the room who is not deep in politics. When I look at the results of the audit, one of the things that I struggle to wrap my brain around, and I would guess some folks in the audience might struggle with this as well, is there's a lot of stuff put out there about potential and possible uh, fraud. But it's hard to then understand how you get from possible and potential to verifiable widespread fraud. And so how does someone who isn't deep in this distinguish between possible fraud and verifiable fraud. Well, I would say, for for there there's there's a there's a sort of simple answer to your question on its face, and then there's an answer uh, to your question in depth. Right, the simple answer to the question on its face is you do what we did, you do an independent audit, but you get access to the password so you can complete it. Right, and then independent people can check the work as as they've done, and people can argue about it as happens in an adversarial system. Uh, that's the simple answer. The complex answer is whether or not you ever believe that there's that there's fraud. And right, and I would say nobody's mind's been changed on this, but it really went from five percent of people believing that there was fraud to over fifty percent of the American public by some polls believing that there was. And whether or not there was is at this point sort of beside the point. I mean, as Sean pointed out, and I get so much shit. From, uh, from my fellow conservatives for saying, there, there is no realistic path to getting President Trump reinstated. I wish there were, but there isn't, right? I mean, that's just the way the legal system works. Uh, that's the way the law is written, and we have to operate within the constraints of the law. So there isn't. So what matters at this point is not whether President Trump gets back into office or out of office or anything like that, right? What matters at this point is making sure that our elections are secure. And what we've learned through this process is that it can happen, right? Which is something that everybody knew, which is something that everybody acknowledged, right? Prior to the 2020 election and because of Trump derangement syndrome, people seem to have forgotten it. But 
uh, but it's something everybody knew and, and now that we've confirmed in multiple ways, right? I mean, again, I've had progressive Democrat clients who for 10 years have been crowing, you know, that any election machine that can be connected to the internet will be connected to the internet. Uh, and what, we, what did we discover? The obvious, right? That, that these election tabulator machines, they could be connected to the internet and they were, right? Or probably were. Um, and so how do we fix that? How do we, how do we shore up that problem? We've, we found issues with mail-in voting, which by the way, the audit was, did not reveal, right? In fact, we had statisticians who had looked at the issues, uh, prior, uh, to the audit, right. You know, uh, during the challenge period and said, Hey, it looks like we have statistical anomalies with mail-in voting, right? We know they can happen, right? The system is so insecure as Elizabeth Warren has said, right, that, Really, to me, the more surprising thing would be if fraud didn't occur. It would be a a miracle of the human nature, right? If Wells Fargo was as insecure as uh, as our election system, the more surprising thing would be when the bank teller opened up the branch that if they had money in the vault, right? The 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 less surprising thing would be if they got robbed, right? So now we need to we now we need to shore up the system. We've had a trial by fire, and it's time to actually have systemic election reform. So in that spirit, for both Alex, you and and Luis, and Luis, we'll start with you. Let's say tomorrow you have the representative's job and you're in control of the legislature. You get to do three things for the 2022 election, just three. What are the top three? How, how do you improve elections from your vantage point? And then Alex will ask you the same question. Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> I'll say that if, if I had the power, right, and I could do anything, I'd, I'd essentially start off by rolling back for, uh, Senate Bill 1485, which removes people from the voter roll, uh, from the early uh, permanent early voter list. That's the first thing that I would do. I just think that it's important for people to be able to cast their vote and, and use whatever mechanism they want to use whenever it is that they want to vote, right? It shouldn't be up to the government or special interests or any of us up here deciding when a person should vote or should not vote using this this you know constitutional right and this this um, procedure by which to vote with that's the first thing um, the second thing that I would do to increase accountability and transparency and I think that's very important is I would look at um, I think one thing that's very important is is recount margins in the state legislature or for just statewide office just in general I think right now it's at 005 percent um, you have to be within that margin for, for there to be an automatic recount of your specific election. I'd look at potentially raising that to 1% and ensuring that, you know, where there is a discrepancy or where there is a question that we find an answer, right? Otherwise, you there's a whole process and you have to petition and whatnot. And I think lastly, the, the third thing I would do is I would look for ways to make it easier for people to vote um, just because that's the bedrock of society in our, in our democracy. And so I think one of the ways that I'm, I'm – one of the things that I'm a big fan of are these voting centers, right? I know that it, they were brought up in the beginning, but I, I don't think that the precinct model where you can only go and vote in your specific precinct allows – People who might work across town on election day because voting is not a uh, sorry election day is not a holiday in the state of Arizona. People who work who live in Mesa who might work downtown get off at five or six p.m. You know, hit traffic, might not make it to their polling location in their their precinct by eight or nine p.m. or whatever time it closes. I mean, this gives them the ability to go to any voting center across the state and vote, cast their ballot, make their opinion heard, and whatnot. I think those are the three things that I would focus on. 
What three changes would I want in election system? I I would say first that uh, that there should not be uh, machine count as the primary way we ascertain the winner. I mean, Sean, you've you've talked about uh, there needing to be a check on um, needing to be a check on hand counts. Uh, I think you can have a check on hand counts. You can have independent audits after elections, which we should be doing after every election. You want to use machines for that? Use machines for it. But uh, but fundamentally, elections should be in control of the people and and in the people in your neighborhood, right? Uh, your friends and neighbors who who you know. So the first thing I'd want to do is is not have machines in our elections. I'd want at the very least a very robust uh, ID system for uh, for mail in voting, uh, and. I would I would really like to see uh, process reforms for election challenges where you did have every case that needed to go to a jury, every case that needed to have evidence presented. Uh, and I'm sure I could think of another 10. Uh, I think Title 16 just needs to be fundamentally be, be rewritten, including like really small things that I think Republicans and Democrats can should be able to agree on. Right. Like. It gets a crime to take a picture of your own ballot. Like, what the hell's up with that, right? I mean, why should you be thrown in jail because you took a picture of your ballot, right? I mean, what does the government have to hide from the people so badly that they criminalize that, right? I, I had Maricopa County threaten some of my clients uh, over that very issue, and it's, it's, it's utterly absurd. So there's a lot of reform that needs to go on, right, some of which we'll never agree on, and we'll duke it out at the ballot box, and some of which – uh, should be common stuff, sense stuff that everybody joins sense on. So, Mike Noble, we've heard a lot on both sides that is pretty far apart, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. What does your data show about partisanship in Arizona, how it's changed? We've heard a lot over the last decade about Arizona becoming purple, right? And And yet we have a red legislature, red controlled legislature, a red governor, yet we somehow have two blue senators and we just elected a blue president. So where, where are we at? Well, that's a great question. And I think just some people haven't got the memo yet. What's fascinating is that prior to the 2018 election, literally every statewide office was held by a Republican. They had in it majorities in the state Senate and state House by a decent margin. I mean, they had full control, essentially, of the state. But what happened? Trump got elected. So the first referendum was a 2018 election. Lost the Senate seat. And then lost a couple other statewide offices. Oh, then 2020 came around. Oh, we lost the second Senate seat. Honestly, if you would have told anyone three years ago that, hey, I guarantee Arizona is going to have two U.S. senators that are Democrats, you would have literally been laughed out of the room. Seriously, laughed out of the room. But guess what? Today, that is our reality. And so I think what the interesting thing is, is that Arizona was, and I think what Arizona, why it was so strongly Republican controlled, is because, again, they were more conservative and then com compared to this whole the Trumpism, essentially calling it right, because uh, instead of a party, which is based on a platform, it's based on an individual, right? That's not really sustainable, but also can get a little confusing because an individual can change your mind. A platform does not. And so when we look at some of these things, like all the numbers are there, but what has happened is that Republicans haven't changed their tactics. Democrats, by the way, have done a very good job of adapting. I think Kirsten Cinema literally, once she got elected, when she was walking off that stage, says, hey, Mark Kelly, you want to be a U.S. senator? Follow this playbook, and guess what? You'll be elected. And when you look at Arizona, Arizona, we're fiercely independent. Only 20% of Arizonans are natives. 
right? So we're all come from, I'm from Wisconsin originally. And so when you look at us is that home of Barry Goldwater, home of Maverick John McCain. Again, we are very much an independent state. Look at Kirsten Cinema. She's literally the most powerful political person probably in the world right now, uh, as you're seeing. Like, it, because again, but what she's done, she's been very independent. So running either center right, center left, or down the center, is the way to go, but running to your party's respective, either the far left or the far right, frankly, you're not going to win. And then, so until folks kind of get that reality about how nuanced Arizona is, it's just, it's no longer this Republican red state. It is unequivocally, we have entered the swing state status, like it or not, it's here. And so it's going to be very interesting. I think this midterm is going to be a key election coming up because what direction does it go? Do, do Republicans get more back to conservative values where they won on? Or do they continue with the current one? If you were to look at it from the data perspective, you'd be like, why would you keep continuing this route? And I don't think, frankly, the audit did any favors, essentially, in a time when you didn't really need to talk about that or do it. And so I really... Uh, those are kind of my, some of my thoughts, at least on Arizona and where we've come to. But again, that's our reality. And sooner people, folks are accepting it. But it's it's an exciting time, I think, to be in Arizona, not only of how important we are nationally, but also the local elections. This election coming up should be incredibly exciting from a local level uh, with all the statewide offices up. We're going to elect our new CEO or governor of the state. So again, it's going to be fantastic. I mean, heck, we may be calling uh, Reginald here, Secretary of State here, uh, come after November. So again, uh, so again, it's an exciting time to be in Arizona and the politics. And again, we're right in the midst, midst of things. But yeah, has things changed? Absolutely. Just some folks haven't uh, agreed to either accept it and some haven't. But that's where we're at. Last question. Next election is November 8th. It's a little over a year away. There will probably be some changes to the way voting happens in the state of Arizona during the legislative session next year. Who knows what that will be? But I don't think there's anybody here that wants to wake up on November 9th and feel like they can't trust the results. And so I'm curious, both Alex and Luis, we've heard what you believe needs to happen from your perspective. What do you feel like you can do working with your Democrats or working with Republicans to find the common ground so that we don't wake up with half of the population feeling like the election was stolen in 2022, regardless of which way it swings? Uh, Yeah, uh, I guess I'll go first. Uh, I think it's important to work across the aisle, honestly. We have to work in a bipartisan manner to... um, restore trust into our electoral system. Um, there are just, you know, there's a large portion of the population, um, Arizona voters who just do not trust our current system for one reason or another, right? We don't have to get into the blame game, but that's just the reality. So we have to figure out how we're going to work together as, you know, Democrats in the minority working with our Republicans and leadership in the state house and state Senate on passing real reforms that are going to rebuild trust in the system. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to agree on every single thing, right? There might be a situation where some people want to take it too far. Some people want to take it, you know, leave it in the middle or whatnot. But I think we just have to figure out what those policies are that are going to do those things for us. Um, And at some point, I really do think that we have to look at the way that we elect folks and look at potentially um, reviewing that, revising it, and and just identifying something that we have to do. Because right now, the current system that we have um, 
that we're using to elect folks uh, to the state legislature, to the state office, whatever it might be, it's just not working. We're getting the most partisan folks from both the left and the right, and they're leaving Arizonans, the majority who vote in the general election, independents, out of the entire equation, and we get to, to pick from you know both bad actors, right? So uh, nothing against any of the, the representatives or senators in the, in the audience, but that's just the reality. Oh. I mean, I... I, I think this elevation of, of bipartisanship, it, you know, it makes some sense, right? I mean, there, like I said, there are things that should be universally agreed that, that serve everybody's agenda we, we could work together on. But in another sense, I think the elevation of bipartisanship uh, is kind of uh, it's kind of a canard, right? Like, I mean, Luis, you've, you've made a lot of actually really compelling arguments uh, tonight, you know, but you didn't make those compelling arguments because you're moderate, right? You made those compelling arguments uh, because you have ideological consistency, right? And, and, and that's, what, that's, what makes it, that's what makes it work. That's what makes it tick. I mean, a moderate, there's two kinds of moderates, right? There's, there's people that have a, have a wonderful faith in humanity and I love those people, right? And the other kind of moderate is, you know, people who just haven't thought too deeply about politics, right? Um, I'd rather have a spirited debate between, you know, two opposing ideologues uh, in a lot of situations over sort of bipartisan handholding because it because it gets you more, you know, more uh, in-depth look at the issues, gets you an ultimately a better product. Um, so so that's that's part of it is, you know, I, I think we got to stop stop worrying about that so much. The other thing is you know, on those subset of issues where you can work together, I think there's a lot that could be done, right, to restore everybody's trust, right? I mean, there are things like the mail-in voting thing. That's a perfect example where where you made, again, an excellent point, right, which is, uh, you know, it's it's hard for people to get to a notary. It's hard, you know, people are worried about having their social security numbers stolen, all of that. Um, you know, I'm a fiscal conservative, always have been. Uh, but there's some things I absolutely agree the state should be spending frickin' money on, right? And one of those is ensuring our elections are secure, right? And if the only way to do that while preserving, while preserving public access to mail-in voting, for example, is for the state to pay to send mobile notaries to people's homes to, to stamp their envelope, right? So they don't have to leave. Make it as easy as possible. I'm all for it. Take my money. You know, shut up and take my money, right? Uh, and I think we could look for, uh, for, for areas like that where something could be done to restore both sides' trust, right? The trust of the left, uh, that people are, you know, people are not uh, being intentionally excluded from the process by making the system uh, hard for the sake of making it hard. Trust from the right that we're verifying the identity of every voter. So, Great. Mike? Ah, so what I think uh, the biggest item of, like, what we need to be watching out for, at least concerned. So at least watching, and I think it's kind of interesting because, you know, I, I came up in politics originally, but then, again, moved to Switzerland, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, <laughs> so it, it's almost fascinating, especially this time, like, of how hyperpolarized everything is. So it's, it's a unique perspective to be able to watch both sides. And I get it. I get both. I think the biggest thing that concerns me right now about electoral process and the confidence in elections is the rhetoric being used. Um, for example, for saying, for example, like the audit, for example, is independent. I would say that's categorically false if you look at the facts. So, for example, let's say, hey, um, I'm going to audit your taxes. By the way, I think you did, uh, you absolutely embezzled money and you really did some, some foolish stuff, whatever. Uh, and that's on record. So you already know I have a predisposed position or a bias. And then, oh, by the way, we're going to pick this person 
to audit your taxes? You'd be like, heck no. I would never let you in a million years do that, right? And those are some of the things is that the rhetoric, so you hear rhetoric saying, oh, there's these problems, there's these issues and all these items. But so you have one hand going one way and the other hand doing other things that are completely contrary to the rhetoric. The thing is, though, people act like when it comes to regular voters, right, of folks that aren't engaged as much as they are. Again, they're not they're only following this a little bit, so they only he see the headline. They only hear some of the, the, the items. They're not going to sit there and investigate it. The reality is this. Politics is a, I like to think of it, is a game. And it's a game that both teams have the same rules. But guess what? Both sides are getting so hyper-polarized right now that, again, it gets a little twisted. And that's how we've come to it. So both sides are guilty. And, again, and, and I think we're going to see it proliferate. But I guess the question is, is that the our voters going to keep those people accountable? Because when you look at our voter registration and how many people – so our total population – how many people are registered, but then how many actually vote? It's a significant amount. But again, voters at the end of the day make the ultimate decision of who represents them or not. But until then, these two parties are going to keep playing their game respectively. So again, so I think one of the things that I would say uh, what to protect integrity is just play the game, but also be cognizant of the rules, because if you put so much doubt and disillusion into the foundation of the game, you, we don't have a game to play anymore. Conversation's not over. We promise Q&A, and for that, I'm going to bring Carlos back up. Okay, so uh, we went over 8 o'clock, but I think it was well worth it for the conversation that we got today. I wanted to open it up to just a few questions. The focus of these kinds of events are for you to meet the speakers, have a beer, and really focus on the uh, reception side. So we're going to be staying here and drinking beer afterward as well. So if we don't get to your question, come up and meet the speakers yourself as well. Okay, uh, I would say you pick the, the person that, that is going to say, just raise your hand and he'll pick you and you'll go. Hi, thank you. My name is Annalise Ortiz. I have a question for um, Representative Bolding. So what Mike was talking about in terms of the fact that Arizona did elect two Democratic senators, um, we have seen incredible organizing by um, Democratic leaders on the ground who have delivered those wins. And working families just aren't taking it anymore when it comes to politicians who aren't working for us. And so in terms of what Mike was saying about the numbers, do you think that the fact that Arizona's demographics are rapidly changing, is that uh, potentially scaring the GOP, the people in power, into doing all of these things like the sham audit, spreading conspiracies about our election, and passing or trying to pass serious voter suppression bills? And how can we be prepared to fight back? Uh, because it's clear they're laying the groundwork now for what they plan to do uh, in the 2022 legislative session. So do you have advice for people like me in the community who are just really concerned and want to fight back against those efforts to take away our right to vote? So I, I think that's a great question. Um, and, and the short answer is, is yes. So if you, if you just look at the data, look at the numbers. In 2010, as was mentioned, uh, every single statewide office was held by Republicans, nearly super majorities in both chambers. At that point in time, 60% of people voted by mail. There was a significant amount of individuals who weren't participating in democracy. 
Fast forward to 2020, when which you had 80% of people who chose to vote by mail, 90,000, 900,000 more individuals participated in vote by mail in 2020 than they did in 2016. A significant amount of those individuals happened to be folks from communities of color, people who, who were more likely active and engaged because they had, and not only people from communities of color, those who were uh, seniors, those who may have had challenges prior to participate in elections. So I, I think that the correlation is clear. The more people who choose to vote, the more people who have access to elections, the more you're seeing them choosing elected leaders who don't look like those individuals who were in office in 2010, in which you had super majorities. So yes, we do have a red a state legislature, and a Republican governor. But many people don't realize this. The state legislature has 60 seats in the House. 31 are Republican, 29 are Democrats. Literally 1,500 votes was the difference in us having a 30-30 House. In the Senate, there are 30 members, 16 Republicans and 14 Democrats. So what you are seeing, literally the House and the Senate is decided by a one vote margin. As you mentioned, two Democratic senators. You have the Secretary of State that's a Democrat. You have two Democrats that are now on the Corporation Commission. You are seeing this trend and this change, and that's because more people are participating. So to stop this trend, what I'm seeing my colleagues on the other side of the aisle do, they're trying to make it so less people can participate. It's simple math. More people participate, the less you have a radical, what I would call a radical right-leaning, lawmaking uh, uh, policy group of people. The more people who, who vote, the more you have more of a even-kill, purple-ish state. Well, if I could add a five-second five tag on that. If, if we're trying to suppress votes Time. by, uh, you know, <laughs> five seconds in lawyer speak. Uh, I know you all understand that. Uh, Look, if we're trying to suppress votes by curtailing uh, mail-in voting, right, as conservatives, uh, that would be a pretty shitty approach because I think the, the data, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, is that uh, expansive mail-in voting rules uh, typically benefit conservatives, right? So to the extent we're, you know, we're cloaking our real intent here, uh, you know, we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot, or perhaps the explanation is a little bit more simple. They actually believe in, in free and fair elections, and as long as there's no cheating, expansive mail-in voting actually helps us. So just wanted to add that. That's great. Thank you so much yeah. for adding that there, Alex. And thank you for the response. Yes. Question over here. Um, hi. So, Alex, um, I apologize. I did not get all your quotes, but I think uh, at some point you made a lot of references to Maricopa County recorder Adrian Fontes uh, cheating the system. So I just have one question for clarity. Um, I'm trying to understand why Adrian Fontes went out of his way to rig an election, an election that he ended up losing, and an election that many Democrats uh, in county-wide offices ended up losing. So why would a Democrat be so focused on rigging just a Trump election and forgetting his own election? I, I just, it, it doesn't make sense to me. No. And then also a comment, if I may. 
I'm going to say that the bravest Republicans were the uh, Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, and that's what we need more of is people who are authentic and real and stand up and speak truthfully that this election was not rigged. And also, I want to highlight that there were cameras uh, 24-7 available uh, throughout the election. It was pretty open and kind of amazing. But I am kind of curious if you could just help me understand, as a Republican who went off on Adrian Fontes, why would he just focus on rigging the Trump election when really, if you ask any Arizonan, the most important elections for me are local elections because I'm kind of tired of Republicans uh, screwing with education and other local policies. That's just me, though. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, this is why this is why I love the adversarial system, right? Because it because it leads to these these poignant and insightful questions. Let me let me unpack it because I because you raised a variety of points. One, the cameras. Uh, if you ever actually looked at the feed for those cameras, you can't see a damn thing. Uh, you can't see you can't see the ballots. You can't see the screens where adjudication is happening, uh, which, of course, uh, Adrian Fontes's illegal instructions would have driven even more ballots through the adjudication process. Um, you also extrapolated a, a step further than I was willing to go. Right. You said you're accusing Adrian Fontes of of rigging the election. Right. I'm, I'm not doing that. Uh, wouldn't surprise me if he did, but no, uh, but 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 I'm not because because there's 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 not there's not the evidence there to draw that connection, right? But what I'm what I'm saying is that he um, is that he administered this election in a highly illegal and insecure fashion, right? And why why would he do that? Is it out of a misguided belief that what he was doing would advance the interests of uh, you know of helping people access ballots? Is it is it because he wanted to just more broadly help the Democratic Party by loosening up the rules regarding voting? Uh, you know, is it because he wanted uh, to make a big political name for himself by getting getting splashes in the media every time he flagrantly violated Arizona law and use it as a platform to run for Secretary of State? You know, you'd have to ask him that question. Uh, good luck, Reginald. Uh, but uh, but uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that uh, that step of it. So, all right, uh, yeah, go for it. Oh, I was, I was just gonna say when it came to the uh, voting habits, it was pretty clear in the data once we got through the elections that time to kind of sift through everything is that the election was very much a referendum on Donald Trump. Uh, the election. You look at the ballots of where the votes happen. Again, right, wrong, or different. This is just what happened. So there was very much a referendum on Trump. McSally lost just because she wasn't a great candidate. I apologize, but that's just the reality of it. And so, but when it came to everything down ticket, Maricopa County, they voted Republican. Republicans won up and down. But then you look at like the state Senate, like Kate Brophy McGee, for example, in her one of the most swingy districts, because the points that some of my colleagues were making up here is that they're right. When it comes to these 30 legislative districts we have, two reps per district, the 30 legislative districts, really only like five are swingy. The other ones are really Republican, really Democrat. So there's really five that are actually more of these moderate swing districts. Kate Brophy McGee was in this like very perfect swing district that she won by only like 400, 500 votes last time, right? The thing is that when you look at the, the results, Trump lost that district by like 12 points. She lost it by a half a point. Yes, she still lost, but again, she ran as a moderate compared to the other one, but she did significantly better. And again, it goes back to that same point earlier of with the election results. Again, it was very much a referendum on Trump, but when you look at down ticket, it, we are still slightly a center-right state. 
Uh, and when you look at the election results, but again, uh, that should help hopefully explain some of that um, that was going on. Very nice. Uh, we have time for one more question. I got one here from Ashley. Thank you. Thank you, Carlos. Uh, this question is for Mr. Noble. I feel like you haven't talked enough tonight. So uh, in, in, polling the, <laughs> in polling the public, how do you account for or safeguard the squeaky wheel problem, which is the fact that the people who are most willing to answer questions tend to be the people who are most vocal about particular issues and tend to be the most extreme on particular issues? How do you account for that in releasing polling results to the public? Well, that's a great question. And so what's funny with the elections is that in polling, you know, uh, everyone can do their methodology or way they go about it because everyone sees just the top line result. But there's a, a lot that goes into it before we get to that portion. And it's interesting is that uh, I just I would just say let the record stand. So I was on record for five elections and all five elections hit them spot on. The only thing is when it comes to, let's say that, uh, let's say the silent Trump voter, I actually had someone just bring it up to me today. And I was like, oh, I, I believe that. Uh, I, I agree with you. That was a thing, but it's not as big as people are making it out to be. Like, for example, we had the Democrat numbers spot on in all the races. The only, and we called all the races still correct, but just the intensity. So like, for example, if let's say the polling showed Trump at 46, uh, he ended up getting 49. So it was about a three-point difference, but it was enough to go outside the margin of error. But what we've found is that, yes, that is slightly an item where some of that refused to take surveys. I'll give you a perfect example. My mother-in-law, <laughs> she literally says, I don't take polls because I think they're BS. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, you know, your uh, son-in-law is like a pollster, does it for a living, and then actually good at it. And anyways, and record to back it up. And so the, the point being is that, uh, you know, we're adapting in the public affairs. But again, I didn't have that issue. I saw there was slight issue. But again, if people are vocal and excited about participating, engaging in surveys, I get they're going to be most likely to speak their opinion. But we still get the moderates. Hence why we do the random sampling. We take the entire voter file. We randomize it. Everyone has an equal opportunity to take the survey. But yeah, you're having some folks opt out. But again, it hasn't affected enough. And I, again, I'd say let the results stand. I go until I whiff an election. Again, still able to, uh, again, not really having that issue. And again, adjustments of, uh, that we've been making. So, again, that's my answer. Any last minute thoughts? Uh, I just want to thank uh, our uh, lovely host, Carlos, by the way. Woo! Thank you. Putting this all together. Again, I, I love absolutely the premise of Arizona Talks. Couldn't be more important than what we have going on now. And also want to thank our awesome and also lovely moderator, Chris Klein, for putting up with us today. Well, fantastic job. Please give it up for the speakers tonight and for Greenwood for hosting us. Uh, as I mentioned, we're a small nonprofit, but we're going to be making a, a big difference here, not only this year, but next year as an election comes. And we have to discuss very important issues in this manner. So if you like this, if you're into this kind of stuff, I invite you to become a member. Uh, it's only $5 a month or $25 a year, and you'd be helping us put these events on um, almost every single month. So again, thank you. And please stick around and drink more beer with us. See you soon. Thank you for listening to the Arizona Talks podcast. If you want to join the conversation and support civil debate, please visit our website at arizonatalks.org.